This is Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And this is Father Patrick Briscoe. And this is Father Gregory Pine. Welcome to Godsplaining. Thanks to all of those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to Godsplaining wherever you listen to your podcasts. Fathers, here we are, the third third Sunday of Lent, um, surviving, thriving, all of the above, none of the above, hopefully all of the above. We're going to say all of the above, and we're going to move on from my questioning of you and how you're doing during Lent because it doesn't matter and no one cares. Uh, so it's like, what was that? What was that game show that Drew Carey used to host? Whose line is it, anyways? Where like the points don't matter and that kind of thing. It's like nobody cares. It's great. We're just gonna have fun though. Uh, so here we are, third Sunday of Lent. Welcome. Uh, we were we're always we're always kind of scrambling to find or scrounging to find something kind of ridiculous to talk about at the beginning of this episode and what we're gonna at, of an episode. So what we're gonna we're going to talk about a, a, a sort of hallowed Lenten tradition um, that, that takes place in our Holy Church on the fifth Sunday of Lent. This is just to give you a little time of preparation. Um, the veiling of statues in our churches. Why does that's do you, Father Patrick, are you pro or con veil, the veiling of statues, covering of statues? Big clapping for the veiling. All the veils veil everything. If it stands still... <laughs> Even if it moves around, I say veil it, you know? <laughs> I, think, I, love, I love this tradition. I really do. I love it. And uh, some, some places continued this practice pretty consistently. Uh, of course, it was required before the Second Vatican Council's adaptations of the liturgy, but um, it was included, incorporated as an instruction um, uh, that it could be done on the fifth Sunday at the release of the new Roman Missal, the new translation, which came out in 2011 in the Novus Ordo. So it's kind of, it's made a comeback, I would say, you know, it's, it's certainly practiced more widely than it had been before. It was one of the things that the pastor at the parish where I served at St. Pius V had introduced. And it was just a really great decision on this pastor's part is one, one of the, one of the things he did that I, that I really, really loved. Um, it got a bunch of people in the parish involved. They all contributed to veiling. And at St. Pius at that church there, it was really striking because the main image at the front of the church is a very large crucifix. And that required a very large veil. And it just had a, a, a haunting effect. It was the kind of thing that drew you into the solemnity of the mysteries that we were going to be celebrating. So very pro, I would say. That's good. Father Gregory, mm. any thoughts on yeah. your availing? Yeah, my thoughts on my availing. So I'm looking forward to a time in my life when I can veil uh, so as to cover my increasing male pattern baldness, which is just accelerating at an alarming rate. <laughs> uh, when it comes to... <laughs> <laughs> Woo. anxiety and sleep deprivation are good for the body um so i want the way that i typically think about reality well i i typically think about reality in terms of how it makes me sad whereas you father jacob bertrand typically think about reality in terms of how it makes you angry which is probably healthier because you tend to extrovert whereas i tend to introvert it and then die um but like i find lent exceedingly difficult and maybe that's of my own doing because of the penances that i assume not that they're heroic i'm just weak but sometimes i feel like i'm like one square of chocolate away from atheism like if i don't have it that is i'll become an atheist 
And uh, just the, the sensory deprivation of the last two weeks of Lent is just enough for me to want to not be there at all. Um, you know, like Good Friday is just terrible when you're in the inside of a church and, you know, Jesus has vacated it. You're like, why? Why must you afflict me so? Uh, but as you see that coming by way of veiled statues, it's foreboding. It's ominous. And I, I would say that it makes me sad. But need I be made sad in order to conform my heart to the ways of the Lord? Perhaps. I'm just limping along. So those are my thoughts. Good. I'm prevailing. <laughs> That's about where I stand. I suppose. Full stop. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> official statement. Well, I think it does what Father Gregory described. Hopefully, not in such like an impressive, way, oppressive way, but <laughs> it's it's sort of an increase in the um, in the sort of reality of of the coming uh, of the coming mysteries of the coming of the of the Triduum and all that. So it. Yeah, I think it's one of those great things. One of the great parts of our faith and of our worship is that we do so not just spiritually, but bodily and how we sort of adjust the spaces in which we worship that that has great effect on on how we worship in our uh, approach to it and that sort of thing. So as our, as like the church gets more and more prepared to be emptied on Good Friday, it helps us like do that, too. So I'm prevailing, um, especially if you have ugly statuary. It's a really great break from looking at the the bad decor in a lot of bad churches so bring out the veils so with that let us get to the topic at hand which is a consideration a meditation perhaps some thoughts on the readings for the third sunday of lent uh, so we'll start with the collect and then we'll we'll go to the first to the first reading let us pray O God, author of every mercy and of all goodness, who in fasting, prayer, and almsgiving have shown us a remedy for sin, look graciously on this confession of our lowliness, that we who are bowed down by our conscience may always be lifted up by your mercy. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Father Gregory, would you read for us the first reading, please? A reading from the book of Exodus. In those days, in their thirst for water, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, Why did you ever make us leave Egypt? Was it just to have us die here of thirst with our children and our livestock? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? A little more and they will stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go over there in front of the people, along with some of the elders of Israel, holding in your hand as you go the staff with which you struck the river. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock in Horeb. Strike the rock, and the water will flow from it for the people to drink. This Moses did in the presence of the elders of Israel. The place was called Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled there and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord in our midst or not? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For our purposes, as we look at the readings for this for this third Sunday of Lent, I want to focus with the first reading on the beginning of this passage from the 17th chapter of Exodus and keeping in mind the gospel that we have coming up with the uh, the Samaritan woman. So the as, as we just heard, as Father Gregory read in those days, in their thirst for water, the people grumbled against Moses. Um, I, I think it's worth focusing our attention on the thirst of of the people in the desert. So on an initial kind of surface level, of course, wandering in the desert um, would make 
you thirsty, would make somebody thirsty. Resources are limited. You're walking. It's probably hot. It reminds me of the Camino. If you want to hear my thoughts on the Camino, go back to an episode from, I don't know, like June or something. Father Gregory and I recount our experience of, of that joy of 40 years of wandering in Spain. Uh, but it's obvious, you know, they would be thirsty. So on the one hand, it makes sense that they would ask for water grumble, maybe complain, I don't know, but at least look for water. But it's not, but but this sort of sets us up for the reality of um, the human desire for satisfaction, for being fulfilled in a more, in a, in a deeper reality, in a more spiritual way, and, and sort of a, points indicates our longing to be to be fulfilled, to be happy, to be made whole. Um, the problem here with the Israelites is that they're looking in the wrong places. It's the perennial problem of sin, this desire to fill what is missing in us, to fill that sort of emptiness in our heart, but with the wrong thing. So the Israelites grumble, they complain, they want to go back to Egypt. They're looking in the wrong places. It's Moses's job here to direct them to, to God, to look to God as their fulfillment, as their happiness, as their protector and savior. And also for us, too, that as we kind of consider our lives again, consider the penance that we do during Lent as the collect introduced of prayer, fasting and almsgiving, where do we search out um, our, for, for the things to satisfy us? Is it solely in the things of this world? Is it, uh, is it the idols of our lives? Is it, you know, in our sin? Or do we turn to God? That's the question at, at hand, at least that we're presented with to begin. Uh, this is one of my favorite pastoral moments in all of scripture, because as a young priest, I, I learned to identify very swiftly with Moses. <laughs> Lord, what shall I do with this people? Uh, there's a certain generation, I, you know, I, I as a young priest, there's a certain generation, uh, I don't want to say who starts with a B, ends with Umers, um, that, that are very difficult uh, to please in this regard. And I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm being a little bit glib here, but, but I'm, I'm raising a, a very serious and difficult point, actually, um, that, that generational experiences have shaped us in the church and it's led to, it's led to, um, real misunderstandings. Um, so older people don't understand why younger priests like us would value our tradition traditions so much. They think that it just bespeaks an uh, unhealthy attachment to rules, and they don't realize that they've so uprooted everything that we're looking for just a little bit of groundedness, that we want we want a place where we know we can stand. And so, so there there are misinterpretations that that go on across the generations, and when they when they become ideological, people stop uh, approaching each other as people. And as a priest, it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to thing to bear, right? Because as a priest, you're looking to animate your people. You want to make changes in your parish. You're hoping to attract new blood. You want people to find Jesus. And when people resist that because we've never done it this way before, or because they're unwilling to embrace the vision of a different generation, it's extraordinarily frustrating. It's greatly sorrowing. And it leads a young priest to become very discouraged and to seek consolation in other things. And uh, so that, that turned into a bit of a rant, but, but what, I, what I want to encourage there is uh, an openness to, uh, to our leadership um, and really to give confidence into the paths that our priests are laying out for us 
as we continue to seek the Lord in the desert. Um, so as we read this passage, we're struck by the fragility of the people of God. And we have a variety of moments in the sacred scriptures that, you know, bring this before our eyes. I'm thinking of the fact that, you know, the creation of man and woman is completed at the end of chapter two of the book of Genesis. And it's already by the fifth verse of chapter three that they have fallen. So though they are equipped with every good and perfect gift, yet they find it difficult to persevere in that. Um, so to hear the people of Israel has just crossed through the Red Sea. So I think they cross in chapter 14. They sing a song of exultation in chapter 15. In chapter 16, they start complaining that they don't have food. They get manna. They complain that they don't have meat. They get quails. They complain that they don't get water. That too is seen to. Um, but it's just like we, as a human people, find it difficult uh, to address God in the midst of our fragility. Instead, we tend to get enveloped by or swallowed in our fragility, and then it becomes for us a stumbling block. Um, so this is a somewhat related story, but I think I can make it apply. My one sister was little. She was praying a novena for one of her friends in school who was sick with cancer. And she was very, you know, diligent in her praying of the novena. And she came down like one morning, uh, and told my mom and dad, like, oh my gosh, like I fell asleep and I didn't finish my novena last night. So it's ruined, right? The novena doesn't count anymore. And my mother being awesome. She's like, Oh, I saw that the page was still open. So when I tucked you in, I held your hand and I said the rest of the prayers. So, you know, Gina just crushing it. Uh, but then <laughs> later that night, my same sister was tired and she wasn't feeling up to her novena. So she just asked my mom if my mom could hold her hand and say the novena prayers while she fell asleep. <laughs> so I think there's a sense in which like our Lord meets us in the midst of our fragility. He holds our hand and he completes our novena prayers, but he also wants to encourage us to say the novena. He's not going to say, yeah, I'll just hold your hand and pray the novena prayers for the rest of your life. So that way you can continue on in spiritual infancy. Now he's like, no, there's a desert to be traversed. There's a promised land to be entered into, and it's going to require something from you. The thing that you supply, I I'll, I'll give it to you, right? I'll supply you with everything that you need for the journey, but you're going to have to act on it. You're going to have to accept it. You're going to have to, you're going to have to do it uh, by my grace and by my, you know, by my sustenance. Okay, let's turn to the second reading uh, from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. Brothers and sisters, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For Christ, while we were still helpless, died at the appointed time for the ungodly. Indeed, only with difficulty does one die for a just person, though perhaps for a good person one might even find courage to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. B. Jarrett says that the virtue we need most in this life is hope. And I think that's really extraordinary um, for a number of reasons. But uh, particularly because Jarrett was a, a figure who really left a tremendous impact. He was probably the most critical figure in the province of England in the 20th century. Um, so he's someone who really, who really understood what it meant to be a leader, a leader of men, um, to shape, uh, to shape an institution, the province of England, and to, to lead those friars through a very difficult period of history. 
And so what's the virtue that he clings to? Uh, be Jared uh, clings to hope um, because hope does not disappoint, as St. Paul tells us. During Lent, um, our, all of our hopes can be challenged, right? Because we're tempted to say, well, I can't even do this for myself or why, why is the Lord allowing uh, me to face my weakness, my own weakness in this regard? And ultimately, it's so that we can profess our hope in him again and recognize that our hope is not in anything we undertake and anything that we're striving for, but in Christ. So the last verse from this passage is one of my favorites. But God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, in the ordinary course, when we love something, it's the beloved object that first allures us, right? Uh, that kind of impresses itself upon us, whether in terms of our senses or in terms of our mind, and then draws us to itself. Because we recognize in that beloved thing something that corresponds to us. It's like, ooh, this is delicious, or this is beautiful, or this is something that I could use, whatever it is. But there's a sense in which the beloved thing is first beloved, and then it addresses us as such. It, cu it cultivates love in us, and then we respond. Whereas in God's dealings with men and women, that is not the case. Uh, because beloved, we love because God first loved us. So the trajectory of the love is reversed insofar as our belovedness actually radiates from God's love. And so when we think about salvation and our role in it, oftentimes we imagine that we need to dust ourselves off and make ourselves presentable in order that we will be found beloved to the Lord. When truth be told, it is the Lord who makes us beloved. And there's this line from St. John of the Cross on account of the fact that it's written in Spanish and I have no quotation integrity. I will say that this is a loose translation, which is code for paraphrase, which is code for I might be making part of it up. But he says, when God looked on you, he saw not love there and put love there. And so I think that for us, it's far more consoling to recognize the fact that our belovedness is not so much contingent upon our efforts as it is upon God's goodness. And that in turn, he makes our efforts to be beloved and to be pleasing. Uh, but when it comes to salvation, we have every claim on his mercy, but no real claim to be beloved apart from it. As Father Gregory and Father Patrick were speaking about hope and, and love and, you know, Christ dying for us while we were yet in sin, this is sort of a very concise summary of the Christian vocation of the Christian life of being made by God and remade by his grace. And we also have this sort of the, the great triptych of the theological virtues present here, faith, hope, and love that St. Paul is talking about um, in, in a way too, to kind of, to kind of match them on to, to Lent. Um, they're great. The virtues of faith, hope, and love unite us, their object, each of them in, a, in their own way, unite us directly to God. That's why they're called the theological virtues. So they connect us to God through faith in our belief, charity in our love, and hope in our hope and expectation of what God promises. And they map onto Lent quite nicely. It's kind of a convenience. Again, our, our collect at the beginning of Mass uh, referenced uh, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So if we're wondering, you know, how it is to grow in this love, how it is to grow in this hope, how it is to grow in this faith over the course of Lent, the church provides these, these three, these three penances or these three observances of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, you know, to grow and all of them in each of them, but uh, particularly in our prayer to grow in faith, to make acts of faith, of belief in God, um, in our fasting to, uh, as, as, a, as a way to grow our hope, we could say, as being detached from the things of this world and hoping more in the promises, the satisfaction, the fulfillment that God provides. 
and lastly, in, in loving more and giving alms, material things, but not out of a sense of duty or obligation, but out of a sense of, of charity, of love, of care for, for our neighbor. So um, the, the sort of setup for Lent and the whole Christian life is, is here in a nutshell that St. That Paul provides us and that the church provides us during this season. Now, Father Patrick, we will turn to the, uh, the gospel for this third Sunday of Lent. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to, drink, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you do not even have a bucket and the cistern is deep. Where then can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this cistern and drank from it himself with his children and his flocks? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. The water I shall give will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered her, The woman answered and said to him, I do not have a husband. Jesus answered her, you are right in saying, I do not have a husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you people say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not understand. We worship what we understand because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And indeed, the Father seeks such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one speaking with you. At that moment, the disciples returned and were amazed that he was talking with a woman. But still no one said, what are you looking for? Or why are you talking with her? The woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I have done. Could he possibly be the Christ? 
They went out of the town and came to him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say in four months the harvest will be here? I tell you, look up and see the fields ripe for the harvest. The reaper is already receiving payment and gathering crops for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For here the saying is verified that one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the work, and you are sharing the fruits of their work. Many of the Samaritans of that town began to believe in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me everything I have done. When the Samaritans came to him, they invited him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more began to believe in him because of his word, and they said to the woman, We no longer believe because of your word, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a tradition in ecclesial life that on Sundays or on high holy days when there is a long gospel, often we have a short homily. So that'd be the case with Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday. That'd be the case often with Good Friday and with the Easter Vigil. So I'll try my best. Um, when, when you encounter passages like this, it's, yeah, I, I suppose it's an occasion in which to represent or uh, to recognize uh, how very close the word of God is to the very flesh of Christ, uh, because it has that feel, an almost visceral feel, as if that were you to cling close to the sacred page, you could hold on to Christ himself. Um, and I remember... I don't know much about the sacred scriptures because, yep, I just haven't been as attentive to the study of the sacred scriptures as I ought perhaps to have been. Uh, but in the novitiate, it was like the first time that I thought about studying scripture with any, I don't know, discipline. And I read this book, uh, The Life of Christ by Fulton Sheen. And in commenting on this passage, he talks about how the woman undergoes a kind of transformation of recognition. And, um, you know, she starts by addressing him, sir. And then one can see in that shades of Lord, and then she acknowledges him as a prophet, and then she refers to him as the Messiah. And how this kind of back and forth with him engenders in her a faith, which faith opens her life up to a salvation, which previously was not possible because she was she was trapped. You know, she was kind of lodged in her sin. And so it, it just reveals to us anew and afresh the efficacy of the sacred page of our engagement with Scripture, which will always be rewarded uh, by treasures you know, previously unknown. But the Lord, in his generosity, has abbreviated himself so that we can read, so that we can hear proclaimed, and so that ultimately we can be conformed to the very mysteries themselves. Here, as the Father Gregory was describing this conversion, this the, the conversion of the Samaritan woman that we see in this interaction with our Lord, um, there, there are many, many angles or things to talk about. It's a long passage, so obviously that gives us more to discuss or more to think about. But even in what's happening, this interaction, this long discourse with this woman, we can see the workings of grace and conversion and with the disciples and discussions of, of, of worship, the dispute between the, the Jews and the Samaritans. There's, there's a lot here. Um, 
marriage things too. One of the things, but all of this and all of it, and it's not just this episode of the gospel. There are plenty of other episodes when our Lord, when, when people encounter our Lord that result in, in the same thing. And the end of this encounter with our Lord is worship. The Samaritan woman comes to worship the Lord. And we see this in other healings. We see this in other miracles that, that the effect is, is that they, that, that those who encounter the Lord end up worshiping him. Well, why? Well, that's because we're made for that relationship with our Lord. Our friendship with our Lord results or leads us to the right worship of God. Christ introduces us how to praise and worship and glorify God. We can think even here of the Our Father. You know, our Lord gives us the Our Father to teach us how to pray and glorify the Father. Um, so it begs the question then, two questions really, how, how do we worship God? How do you worship God? Um, not, not explain to me how the church worships God, but you know, what is your relationship with Christ vis-a-vis um, -vis your worship? How do you enter into the mass? How do you pray on your own? How do you live your life outside of church such that everything you do glorifies God? Uh, and secondly, um, perhaps less a question, but a, a good, a helpful metric is that, you know, as we grow in the spiritual life and closer to Christ, a way to sort of um, see, I mean, not judge uh, full stop, but to see our growth is our, is our sort of ability and our desire and our capacity for the worship of God, of our entering into union with him. That doesn't mean every time we go to mass, it's a glorious exchange, but that we're drawn into that in, in fuller ways. So, um, yeah, take stock of that, that, that our relationship with Christ, our, the grace that we're fed, the virtues that we live, lead us into this relationship of, of worship where we are also fed and satisfied and brought to fulfillment and completion. In recent times, this passage has been used as a great example of evangelization. And one of the things that is remarkable is that you can see the woman doesn't even really know what she wants. And she thinks that the water at the well is going to satisfy her. And it's not until the Lord comes and says, well, actually, there's this other thing. And that other thing is going to be what makes you happy. And I think that speaks to a lot of people today who are asking questions about their identity or about the destination and purpose of their life. I mean, these are questions we have to answer. They're not casual things. Without them, we, we, we will not live. We, we cannot bear it. Human beings need that kind of meaning. They need that purpose. They need that kind of drive. And they need to have it revealed to them where it can be found. And only Christ is going to satisfy the furthest horizons of our hearts. It's only going to be the Lord. And only he is going to reveal to us what it is that we're actually looking for. Because otherwise, we'll just continue to draw water from wells that don't satisfy. Uh, only the Lord will give us the living water, which will spring up in our hearts and give us waters of, uh, waters of new life. Well, there you have it some thoughts on these things for the third Sunday of Lent. If you find our thoughts and meditations on the readings a little lackluster, hopefully you found our thoughts and meditations on veiling a little more inspiring. Uh, so there you have it. Uh, thanks for listening to this episode of God's Plating. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, like, subscribe, leave a five-star review. If you'd like to donate to the podcast through Patreon, follow the link in the, in the description. You can also follow links in the description to shop Godsplaining merchandise and to get information on upcoming 
God-splaining events, particularly um, our, our summer retreats. Our first summer retreat is, all of our summer retreats are now posted on our website, godsplaining.org, but our first one is now, uh, we're now accepting uh, registration for the retreat. It's called The Hinges of Holiness, Cultivating the Cardinal Virtues. It's an all-comers retreat, so it's for anyone who's 21 and older. It'll be June 16th through the 18th. Um, this summer, I was going to say 2023, but this summer, those are both true um, in Mel at the Malvern Retreat House in Malvern, Pennsylvania. And we'll be reading um, the four cardinal virtues by Joseph Pieper. So uh, we're excited. Last summer was the first time we held an all comers retreat and uh, we, we really love doing it. So if you're thinking of wanting to go on retreat this summer, check it out. Uh, we'd be super happy to have you. Um, as always, please pray for us. Know of our prayers for you. And until next time. God bless.